Welcome to the Book Collector podcast. The Book Collector's next podcast is the obituary of the publisher, Sir Rupert Hart Davis. I'm James Fleming. My father's brother was Peter Fleming, traveller and writer, whose publisher and friend Hart Davis was. According to my uncle, Hart Davis excelled as a publisher but lacked the business acumen to succeed in a famously tricky profession. This is borne out by Nicholas Barker in this obituary, which he wrote and which was published by Quaritch in At First All Went Well. Sir Rupert Hart Davis, 28th of August 1907 to the 8th of December 1999. Rupert Hart Davis was a notable book collector, chiefly of English literature of the last two centuries, and during his London years, secretary of the Biblio's Dining Club. His collection has now gone en bloc to the University of Oklahoma, Tulsa, to which it will be a notable accession. But it is as a publisher, and even more an editor, that he will be remembered. He had an enormous output, all of it distinguished by tact and sensibility for his texts, accompanied by an equal care and thoroughness in explaining them. His footnotes were legendary, compact with well-researched facts, often witty as well as concise. He was a publisher for so long that it is hard to remember that his first enthusiasm, Fard de Eton, was the stage. When he left Oxford, he spent six months at Balliol. He spent a year as a student at the Old Vic, and then all but two years under Nigel Playfair at the Lyric Hammersmith. He was briefly married to Peggy Ashcroft, met on the stage, but in October 1929 he joined William Heinemann as office boy, working in various departments as training for a higher position. Hugh Walpole then invited him to become manager of the Book Society, the most distinguished book club of its day. He had already had some dealings with Jonathan Cape, publisher of his uncle Duff Cooper's Talleyrand, Cape had been characteristically cautious. But now he offered Hart Davis a directorship. He joined the firm in April 1933. One of the first things he did was to conscript his Eton friend Peter Fleming just off to Brazil to search for Colonel Fawcett. Brazilian adventure, 1933, led to a lifelong friendship. He made other new friends, William Plumer, who became a regular Cape advisor, Cecil Day-Lewis, whom he enabled to give up teaching and concentrate on writing, and H.E. Bates, whose short stories he was the first to admire. He also edited a selection of Robert Frost's poetry and was one of the first directors of the Reprint Society, founded by Alan Bott as an offshoot of the Book Society. Although Hart Davis served in the Coldstream Guards in the Second World War, becoming adjutant of its training battalion, he remained a director of Cape and was largely responsible for one of its greatest successes, Lord Wavell's anthology Other Men's Flowers, 1944. At the end of the war, he felt that he deserved a greater part in the firm, but Cape, wrongly suspecting that he had an offer elsewhere, refused. This determined Hart Davis to set up his own business. He enlisted David Garnett, son of Cape's editorial adviser Edward Garnett, and Geoffrey Keynes. Between them they found the necessary capital, and Rupert Hart Davis Limited opened at 56 Connaught Street near Marble Arch. 
David Garnett had been Francis Menel's partner in the Nonsuch Press, and Keynes had been one of its main editors. The Nonsuch Press's tradition and experience and contacts acquired from Jonathan Cape were the hallmarks of the new imprint. It also early established a name for well-designed books. The first production manager was Edward Young, one of the original Penguin team and designer of the first Penguins. Reynolds Stone, another Eton friend and disciple of Stanley Morrison, engraved the first Fox, the device that ornamented Hart Davis title pages. The first two books were a selection of 14 stories by Henry James, edited by Garnet, and Democracy and the Arts, an unpublished essay by Rupert Brooke. The colours were nailed to the mast. The imprint of Rupert Hart Davis stood for quality first. If it were to be popular too, standards were not to be relaxed. There were indeed some popular successes. The first was Stephen Potter's Gamesmanship, 1947, which added a new word to the English language. Elephant Bill, 1950, did even better. Lieutenant Colonel J. H. Williams was discovered in the New Yorker, improbably, by Garnet, who ghosted his story. Its striking jacket was by John Minton. The biggest early Hart Davis bestseller of all was Heinrich Harrer's Seven Years in Tibet, 1953. Introduced by Peter Fleming, it had colour photograph illustrations which heightened the exotic story of the German prisoner of war's escape from Russia to become the confidant of the young Dalai Lama. Henry James remained a pervasive presence, with series of his criticism and fiction culminating in Leon Edel's edition of The Complete Tales, 1962-64, to and his five-volume biography, 1953-72. to But perhaps the most notable literary achievement was the Reynard Library, one-volume collections of all or most of the work of major authors. Elegantly produced in the manner of the pre-war non-such series, with a Reynolds stone jacket, they sold steadily. Old friends also contributed. Several volumes of J. M. Young's essays were published, and a new edition of his Life of Gibbon. Among Eric Linklater's novels, Sealskin Trousers, 1947, had wood engravings by Joan Hassel, who also did an elegant R.H.D. Fox. Duff Cooper's Operation Heartbreak, 1950, a fictional pre-telling of the still-secret story of Cicero, was a runaway bestseller, as was his autobiography, Old Men Forget, 1957. The firm outgrew its little office in Connaught Street, always closed for the duration of the second and fifth test matches, cricket being paramount to all the staff. In 1950, it moved to 36 Soho Square, publisher's quarters for over a century, first occupied by John Russell Smith, publisher of the Dorset poet William Barnes, and this became a literary rialto, authors and scholars dropping in en route from or to the British Museum or lunch in the Soho restaurants. But growth and fame did not make for commercial success. In 1953, more capital was required. It came from Herbert Agar, who, with Milton Waldman, an editor of Genius, joined the board. Unhappily, this was the cause of a rift with David Garnett, who could not accept the devaluation of the original shares required by the new investment. He left, but his son Richard remained as production manager in the place of Teddy Young, who had left to write one of our submarines, 
1952, later to become the 1,000th penguin. For a time, all was well. The firm's horizons widened. Agar brought the English rights in Adlai Stevenson's writings and Alistair Cook. Milton Waldman's main contribution was Gerald Durrell, lifted from Faber's, who had not had much success with his first book. Three Singles to Adventure, 1954, was a success. The Baffert Beagles, 1954, a greater one. And My Family and Other Animals, 1956, still greater, rivaling seven years in Tibet in sales. But by 1956, the firm was in straits again, from which it was rescued by Lionel Fraser. Not the first great man to be seduced by Hart Davis's charm, integrity and force of character. As chairman of Thomas Tilling, which owned Heinemann and other publishers, he saw in Hart Davis a potential chairman of the group and arranged for his firm to be taken over by it. The new shareholders lost their investment, but departed gracefully. For Hart Davis, this respite was real. The relief from worry about money, worried the worse for being self-induced, enabled him to relax a little. With less restraint, his character, in which wit and irony mingled with tenderness and parade-ground discipline, never-ending hope of great things balanced by low expectations, began to blossom. He never wrote a dull letter, but his correspondence too began to blossom, notably that with George Littleton. He was now able to indulge tastes he had kept in check. Poetry, for example, one of the casus belli with Cape. He had already published Dorothy Wellesley's Early Light. Now a whole series followed. Some of them, R.S. Thomas's Song at the Year's Turning, 1955, and Charles Causley's Union Street, 1957, and their sequels, and Brian Hill's translations from the French with lasting success. The publication of Andrew Young's Collected Poems, 1961, revived his one success in this line at Cape, again enlivened by Hassel's beautiful wood engravings. With novels, he was less successful, apart from the translations. There was Chapman Mortimer, but only Ray Bradbury, who dedicated Fahrenheit 451, 1953, to Hart Davis in memorable circumstances, had more than ephemeral success. The main flavour of the list was lit historical. The Soho bibliographies had begun with Alan Wade's Yeats. Wade's edition of Yeats' letters followed and became itself the model for the letters of Oscar Wilde, which Hart Davis took over from Vivian Holland, whose son of Oscar Wilde had been one of the successes of 1954. Wilde's letters came to dominate Hart Davis's more and more and his interest in the everyday detail of publishing waned a little. True, Peter Fleming had a renewed success with Invasion 1940, 1957, followed by The Siege at Pekin, 1959, and Bayonets to Lhasa, 1961. The last was published as the Chinese invaded Tibet, and Fleming was interviewed by Cliff Mitchellmore on Tonight, then watched by 25 million. I expect you'll sell a lot of copies, said Sidney Bernstein next day to Hart Davis and told him how much it would have cost as a commercial. Well, I expect at least three people will ask for it in their public library, was the characteristic reply. There lay the seed of further disaster. Nothing could persuade Hart Davis to the pursuit of vulgar publicity. 
his Heinemann colleagues drove him, protesting, to visit America in 1960. He was a great success, publishers vying to press their wires on him, but he was thankful to get back. One of the publishers he met was Bill Jovanovich of Harcourt Brace. Next year, relations with Heinemann reached breaking point, and Jovanovich stepped in. He bought Rupert Hart Davis Limited from the Tilling Group in record time. But then came another crash. The invasion of Cuba brought collapse to the American stock market. Harcourt Brace had to cut back, and Jovanovich, off as quickly as he'd been on, threatened to close Hart Davis. Rescue came via Arnold Goodman from Sidney Bernstein. The firm was taken over again, this time by the Granada Group. Mercifully, this last catastrophe was accompanied by an unexpected stroke of good fortune. In 1952, Hart Davis had written the authorised biography of Hugh Walpole, whose estate now passed to him on the death of Walpole's brother. For the first time in his life, he found himself with independent, if modest, means. With Ruth Simon, whom he now married, he abandoned London for Yorkshire, never to return, or only passing through on the way to an annual holiday in Italy. It was Max Beerbohm who first lured Hart Davis to Italy. He had published Around Theatres in 1953 and became the friend and advisor of Max's widow Elizabeth, and after her death, of his sister, Eva Reichmaim. Now he added the letters to Reggie Turner, more theatrical criticism, and a catalogue raisonné of the caricatures, 1972. Long friendship and the more frequent task of literary executor led him to edit the autobiography of Arthur Ranson and unpublished work of William Plumer and Siegfried Sassoon. There were more letters of Oscar Wilde and Max Beerbohm, and finally, four volumes of autobiography. Often there were five books on the go simultaneously, and the old rectory at Mask was not small. Hot Davis had a separate room in which to work in each of them. Small wonder that he was happy. When, on New Year's Day 1967, he was knighted, an old friend telephoned first thing to congratulate him and apologised for the hour. You're not the first, said Hart Davis. Peggy always rings me up after the close of play in Australia, and she heard it on the late news. Later that year, tragedy struck. Rupert and Ruth Hart Davis went to a wedding in Edinburgh. The train was late, and as they were running to a taxi, Ruth suddenly dropped dead with a heart attack. Rupert was inconsolable, and his friends wondered how he would survive. They did not have worried. He was a punctual correspondent, and his letters were typed by June Williams, once his secretary and now widowed and living not far away. In 1968 they married, and the elegiac last phase of Hart Davis's life began. He was amazed by the success of his correspondence with George Littleton. In those six volumes, in many ways, you have the best portrait of Hart Davis in his prime. The University of Soho Square, as one of his admirers called it, revolved round him, although few then realised what Littleton was told, that the busy, successful social world was a treadmill he longed to abandon. Looking back, it is hard not to see the short but distinguished career of Rupert Hart Davis as a golden age in the history of publishing. He had a complex character, at once jovial and melancholic. In company, he was its life and soul, 
his own wit mingled with anecdote and quotation, the effect heightened by his military appearance and bluff delivery. His long friendship with Peter Fleming was a wonderful exercise in self-parody on both sides. But the melancholy was real. When one of his nearest and dearest became a tax exile, his response was characteristic. And if I die, he said, they won't even be able to come to my funeral. That was Nicholas Barker's obituary of Sir Rupert Hart Davis, read by James Fleming and published by Quaritch in At First All Went Well. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal.